Welcome to Rapping PE. I'm your host, Stephen Buller, aka Beard Drip Buller, as you see on Twitter and Instagram. This is the place where we explore precarity, pedagogy, and physical education. This podcast is dedicated to physical educators of the future, past, and present. Episode 8, we're going to continue our official podcast journey where I have the pleasure of introducing Justin Schleider. He is the quote-unquote brains behind Slow Chat PE. He has his hands in co-creating Voxer PE. Um, He is part of the Voxer PE chat, which has a plethora of PE teachers from all over the world. You might want to check that out as a great resource. Well, we're going to get started. Wait for the beat to drop. Here we go. So, which is better for you, dogs or cats? Mm, which is better? Well, it depends what point in my life. So right now in this part of my life, cats, because I can leave for the weekend without worrying. Um, before that, before I had my kids, I had two German Shepherds. Loved them. Oh, my God, they were amazing. Brilliant dogs, fun to hang out with. Um, so I guess it depends on the situation. If I had to choose one, I'd say dogs, um, but they are a boatload of responsibility and they kind of kill your ability to move uh, in, in, you know, to go on vacations and do things. So it's the only drawback. That's logical. I, I feel that pain sometimes. And mm. the interesting thing is I don't think anybody has said cats yet. I mean, I grew up with cats. I love cats. I got no problem with cats. If you live in any rural area, cats help keep all the mice away. I mean, I like cats. I've had cool cats. I probably had, I don't know, growing up between six and eight cats over the years, uh, and they were amazing. So I, I like cats, but just, I don't know, dogs got that extra little little something, right? Like cats, for the most part, can give or take. You know, you come home, hey, and then they, they keep it moving. I mean, I trained my cats when I called them. They would come to me. Um, they were as close to dogs as could be. But again, when we have to say a cat is as close to a dog, then really what's the bar? That's accurate right there. The bar will always be the dog. Mm. That's fine. All right. The other one that I'm interested in, which do you prefer, coffee or tea? I feel like most teachers need caffeine. Yeah, coffee all day. Tea's fine with a little bit of honey. Um, you know, uh, I'm not English, American. I went with the coffee. Again, tea's fine. It's just I do coffee. That's my choice. I'll agree with that. Coffee is the essential routine of everything I do. I mean, and tea, good tea, is so damn expensive. I mean, like Tivana had the most amazing tea. It smelled great. I even had the Tivana cup. But, I mean, can I be spending, I don't know, $30, $40 a pound? I mean, for really good coffee, you could get away with 15 bucks a pound, and that's, like, on the really expensive side. Mm-hmm. All right. What is your all-time favorite physical activity, sport, or anything of the sort? All right. Again, everything is you know, <laughs> dependent. So, growing up, uh, I played soccer, wrestling, and baseball. Uh, I was the best at baseball, but I only got two varsity letters in baseball. I was the worst at wrestling, but I got four varsity letters in wrestling. And soccer I was pretty good at, and I got three. Um, but to be honest, wrestling is head and shoulders my favorite activity that I've ever done in my life. Um, because there's not only the physical aspect, which is by far, by far and away the hardest sport out there. You have like wrestling and boxing are are hand in hand, physically demanding. Um, But wrestling with that weight challenge has the game within the game. And that is where I learned so much about myself, my ability to discipline myself for short periods of time. Uh, And, and, overcoming obstacles that most people would imagine would be insurmountable. Um, You know, losing seven to 10 pounds in a day and, 
you know, managing to keep that off and, you know, do it in a healthy manner. Cause I was doing it when, you know, there weren't so many rules and regulations where, you know, now you can't really get away with the stuff they did back in the day, but I, I did a pretty good job. Um, baseball as a leisure activity. Oh my God. So much fun. You know, I, I went from wrestling to baseball. So I feel like baseball didn't get my full attention and, and, and attention to detail and everything else. Cause I was so worn down from wrestling, but coming out of wrestling, baseball was fun. Like, what do you mean for conditioning? I have to like jump over puddles. Like, like there's, there's no conditioning <laughs> to baseball. So it was a pleasure. I was out there with my friends, the sun shining. Baseball, I found very pleasurable, but wrestling growing up was by far and away the, the camaraderie, the team, everything about wrestling was amazing. So that's my high school-ish uh, years. And now that I'm an old man, um, it's old man basketball. I am ride or die old man basketball. I have turned down dinners. I've turned down sex. I've turned down everything in order to go play old man basketball because I love it uh, for two hours. It used to be twice a week and then, you know, kids and all that. Uh, once a week, the world disappears. I just care about putting that ball in the hole and stopping the other team from doing that. So I am right now at this point in my life, old man basketball is one of my favorite things to do. There is definitely something about old man basketball. I started playing right before Corona and it was so refreshing, like a change of pace, something that I haven't had in years. So I feel you with that. It's, it's amazing. Baseball. It's like basketball is perfect. Mm-hmm. All right, so this is now we're gonna get a little bit more in depth with the questions. So sure, this is, this has been my favorite one because this kind of gives us a little insight. Many people who are possibly listening to this probably already know who you are, but who are you? What makes you you? Mm, who am I? Uh, I'm an average white dude. <laughs> that <laughs> if I had to sum it up. That's about it. And I'm working to become not so average uh, on there. So that's who I am. And then what makes me, me? Was that the second part yeah. of it? Um, I think my ability to jump into things with a fearlessness um, and, and, and a critical lens of everything on there has really gotten me to learn and to continue to grow, which is one of those things I'm really scared about, that I'm going to um, settle and, and not continue to push myself and, and really grab life by the balls is, is it. I don't want to waste time. Uh, one of the things that drives me is this idea that time is so finite and that at any time, you know, it, it could be taken away. So I try not to waste it, which is why, you know, you see me do a bunch of different projects and try to get involved. And when I see other people who are pushing themselves and others, I try to latch on to them and learn from them. So this idea that, you know, time just passes. And as I get older, it's quicker and quicker. I mean, I can't believe I'm 38. I was thinking like, I don't feel 38. And I know that that's not even that old in the grand scheme of things, hopefully. Um, so that's one of those things, the drive of not wasting time and continuing to grow, plus the ability to jump into things uh, and kind of muddle my way through them and hopefully not harm too many people in the process, I think uh, makes me me. Makes sense. I, I can definitely relate to that. But you have this to look forward to. 40 is the new 30. Yeah, but I mean, new life expectancy is still life expectancy. So while I may feel a little better, which hopefully I will with nutrition and, you know, everything we know about staying out of the sun, and smoking, all the other things. At the end of the day, if we're only living to 77, we're still living to 77. <laughs> you know, hopefully I feel like I'm 30 all the way to the end. Well, we'll see. 
<laughs> we have many years until that comes too. Mm. Um, here we go. Last question before we kick into a higher gear. What do you believe is your purpose as an educator and as a human? Mm. So as an educator, it's going to be to create the most pleasurable uh, opportunity and environment to learn and grow for myself and my students on there. So how can I make what we're doing joyous and fun while still maintaining that idea that we, we have to learn, we have to grow, we have to um, have a meaningful experience on there. And then what was the second part? And just as a human, like what, what is your purpose as a human? Oh, that's such a great question. Right. We, I think everybody at some point should be challenging themselves on that. Like, why are we here? What's the point? Uh, and from what I've settled on so far, and I don't have a really good answer, but the idea to, to really help others and, and try to bring a light wherever I go. So other people uh, are, are benefiting from me being there, whether it's by, mood or resources or whatever it is, but just wherever I go to make it better because I'm there. I, I can definitely relate to that. That's part of a rediscovering like myself is like, what does it mean to be a human? I think that's the ideal answer to a certain extent is like bringing that light wherever you go and making that positive influence and change. Which brings us on to our next, maybe not so bright topic of uh, precarity. Um, I know you've done a lot of work with professional developments, and I noticed on your website quite a few were like social justice oriented. And here we go. So this is a quick little definition I found on the internet to kind of describe what precarity is. It's from Katie McEwen. So precarity is about uncertainty and change. It is a practical lived experience and an existential sense of being. It is a political, economic, and cultural process and a social and psychological condition. Some, like Guy Standing, even see precarity as being emblematic of a new mass social class, the precariat. So where I kind of want to go with this is because I typically teach in an urban setting and I think yours is more like suburban, correct? Yes. There might be like that disconnect from like the experience of like our students. So I wanted to kind of like bridge that with precarity because I know that occurs everywhere. That's just like uncertainty. It can affect anybody, even us as teachers and adults. We could look at how the impact is felt greatly by those of us who hold the least social, cultural, and economic resources as a defense against its effects. So what can we do with social justice and physical education pedagogy to kind of help students prepare for that uncertainty and like the issues with it? <sighs> so first, I mean, if, we, if we're looking at precarity of economics, Right, this idea, um, I guess, precarity would be a spectrum like everything else of, you know, is it, are we living paycheck to paycheck? Is there, what is our access to food? So I think social justice and precarity go hand in hand with the idea that social justice is access to resources. Mm -hmm. And resources are everything from, you know, physical to emotional to, to everything. So when you talk about the economics of precarity, um, very difficult. It's hard to, to say to kids, listen, our system is not set up so that everyone will have six months or years worth of savings in order to pay the rent, in order to have food, in order to pay your electric bills, your internet on there. So that part, uh, the economics, I think, is way outside what we can do. The one thing I, I do 
um, think is kind of important there is going back to our last podcast of showing our students, even though most of your teachers are going to be white, teaching is a profession that provides a, a stable paycheck. And on there, when you talk about um, access to resources, health insurance has to be up there with that. Because without health insurance, then you don't have access uh, for there to when you get sick and, and for medical benefits. So teaching in that regards is one thing we could do. We could say to the, to the students who we feel really um, understand physical education and would thrive in bringing others into the fold of showing them that, hey, no matter what your skin color is, no matter what gender you ascribe to, uh, whatever it is, being a physical education teacher is a fantastic job if you're okay with being middle class and knowing that it's not exactly the most glamorous of jobs when you look at titles and accolades and all that. Um, but it's definitely, you know, it will pay the bills. You will know that you'll have a, a decent paycheck. So that will lower the precarity there financially, which I think is huge because a lot of kids, that's the first thing. And that was one of the main draws for me as being a teacher is I didn't want to go into the business world where maybe I make 200, 300, 400,000. Maybe I lose a business like, or the business goes under and I have nothing. I didn't want that. I want to know every two weeks I get blah, blah, blah. So I think that's one way for economics. Um, but then when you talk about precarity in the idea of health, right? Cause we never really understand what our health is going to be. One day we're great. The next day, who knows? So in order to lower the amount of precarity in health, we know there are things we can do. We could try to eat a balanced diet. And again, that doesn't mean that we hit up the food plate uh, because we know that that's not very cultural, uh, culturally appropriate there. But we do know, in general, fried foods aren't that great for us. Right? We know some basics of things we know. In general, fruits and vegetables are going to be better. In general, processed foods are worse than foods that are natural. So we can, we can take care uh, of that and show them that in our classes um, over there. And then when we stay healthy physically, like when we're moving and getting our you know, muscles developed so they're burning calories, when we're getting our heart rate up, when we're moving for the joy of movement, lowering the cortisol levels we have, we know that we are increasing our ability to stay healthy. And there's no guarantees. Like I tell the kids, I go, listen, we have a hundred sided dice, right? Right now, let's say you roll a one to five and you get some kind of fatal disease, right? But if you add smoking on top of that, you add eating like garbage on top of it, you add not moving at all on top of it. Now, maybe if you roll the one to 20, you get some sort of fatal disease. That idea of we can only minimize what we can do um, to stay healthy and give ourselves the best chance to be here uh, in, in a physically, mentally fantastic way for as long as possible, we could do that in our class and we could show them on there. And again, I know that's a bit of a neoliberal approach that a lot of it falls on us as the individual um, and also through our teachings in health and phys ed, we could talk about, well, what are the systems that we don't have a lot of control over that impact our health? And once we start doing that, then again, we can raise critical students who can figure out, okay, what is my role in changing the system uh, on there? So again, there's a lot we could do um, on there. And I think the, the major thing we could do is just bring information to the students and teach them how to be critical of everything, including us. And then once they do that and they know where to get information, how to access it and what's reliable, then they could start going on their own journey um, towards really lessening the precarity in their lives. 
That's very well said. Um, you know, when you mentioned the neoliberal aspect, that was like one part that has been bugging me is how a lot of times we do push this on to the individual. Like it's all on you no matter what. Everything's equal as soon as you come out the womb. And it's just not the reality of it. And mm. definitely providing that critical lens is very important because you can combat that thought process that it's your fault, like whatever circumstance you were born in and also help you to kind of figure out how to get out of that situation and understand that there's just has to be more effort in a way and figure out how to get out of that. Um, but also raising that empathy from other students to understand that they might've been placed in a better position just based on where you were born. Literally. I mean, in uh, the United States, your greatest factor on your longevity of life is your zip code. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about the problems of the system, I don't know what does. And if that doesn't tell you the need for social justice and valuing every human life as being equal and no human having more value than another, um, I don't know what does. And, you know, we can look at the systems and say, okay, why is that? You know, why is the air pollution in certain areas worse? Why is your access to fresh foods worse? You know, why are the poisons being released in the environment around factories worse? I mean, you have to look and dig in and go, okay, if that's true, then why is it true? Which becomes, again, that critical lens of, okay, it's not enough to know. Now I have to figure out why. And then comes that next step. What are you going to do to combat that? Yeah, I think that's kind of an interesting perspective that I've been trying to figure out how to morph my classes because I teach in Germantown, Philadelphia. Philadelphia has very interesting history. Um, definitely has been impacted negatively over a great white flight. To what extent can you push those lenses on your students without overloading them? know what i'm saying mm. where like you're telling them all these negative things and at what point does that overtake them and maybe stuff or like the concept of learned self-helplessness kicks in it's like how do you how would you balance that so it's a really good question it's kind of like that that rubber band of where can we stretch without breaking uh, on there so part of it is we're doing it with the students. We're not doing it to the students. So we can bring up provocations and we can simply say, and again, I get the benefit of teaching health and phys ed. So in phys ed, if you're strictly a phys ed teacher, that's gonna be a little more difficult to get into some of the health subjects on this step or in the health classroom, it's naturally aligned a little better. Absolutely. But even the provocation of does your zip code impact the length of your life and then you have the students go and start doing the research and then you have them start to go and then you you everything's discussions so again it's for me especially with kids i want them to know that i'm not the expert in the room while i come with some knowledge that they may not have they have knowledge as well and through them i want to learn as well so that's the first part is once we allow them to understand that we're not the authority we're not the end all and be all so again yes do i have to manage the class yes do i have to give out grades yes am i in charge of learning and growth all those are there that's part of my job as the teacher but also my job is together with them to go on the journey and set up uh, an experience of, okay, let's look at information. And then let's see, what do you think? Like you live in Philadelphia. What are your thoughts? How does this relate to what you see? You have relatives that don't live in Philadelphia. How is this different from where they live? So again, uh, a lot of it is instead of just going, the world sucks, you know, there's a lot of resources that are being hoarded uh, and, and pushing it down in that way. It's let's look at what's going on. What do you see? And then kind of allowing them to
to figure out what they want to do on the journey and where they're at. Absolutely. It's a definitely a journey with other people. That's definitely part of my beliefs as a teacher. It's like a human experience combined. What do you think about like young teachers coming in or even older teachers? Like how do you change that perspective? Because I know even for myself, when I started teaching, even with going to teacher's college and having been exposed to a variety of these different pedagogy that I guess are more progressive, how do you just convince convince a teacher just to let go of the power and share it? I don't think we convince anyone of anything ever. Uh, Got to be honest there. All I could do is model what I believe is best practices. And I mean, my first, I don't know, seven years wasn't really even that great. So I really have nothing, you know, no box to judge other people and you know get on my high horse there. Um, and who knows, in another 10 years, I might look back at what I've been doing the past five years and go, that was shitty teaching too. So I, I'm not in the business of convincing anybody. I, I've, and some of the research you come across is when you try to convince people, they dig in even deeper. So it's almost counter to what you want anyway. And co- we know cognitive dissonance is real uh, on there. So all I could do is model what I think. And then in teachers meetings, in the faculty room, um, speak up when I see things and say, in my vantage point on there, offer resources to teachers who want them, find people who are like-minded on there and join forces with them. And the rest of the other people, they have to come to us. I will be open with open arms. Listen, I read this book. I think you might like it. Uh, but when they see the relationships, when they see the students wanting to be near me, when they see the parents starting to demand more from other teachers after they had me, when they hear what I'm doing, when I send out the links to the podcast in my school, um, all those, then they have to make the choice to come to us. And there's no way I can convince anyone who doesn't want to be convinced over there. And I know that sucks because they're harming teachers or harming students and harming teachers as well with their vitriol when they speak. But um, I just don't see us being able to convince anyone that's not ready. I saw, uh, I'm reading this amazing book now. And they said, they use this allegory of what we do to students. I think it was in a book. Anyway, and it said, Um, School is like leading the horse to water, and if it doesn't drink, punching the horse in the nose until it starts bleeding and forcing its face into the water. And I feel like that's a lot of what convincing is, even for other teachers. That's perfect. That's exactly where I was hoping you would go with that question. Definitely went further than I expected, so thank you. (laughs) I I was watching Waco last night and there was a very similar allegory with a dog so i don't know if you've seen that but i have not so at one point the one um negotiator described the situation as so would you punish your dog for every time it brought you a newspaper by kicking it in the balls Hmm. which was kind of feeds into the same concept as like if somebody's bringing some assets to the table, why are you pushing those assets away? Why are you pushing those abilities away? Because we don't value them. Correct. Because you don't value it. (laughs) So that was actually like a perfect answer. Might use that as my trailer bit. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Um, Here we go. Can you give an example of one lesson that you've done that you have maybe some pride in or even a lesson that you think just didn't hit the mark and maybe you failed on it that incorporated social justice in your classroom and what did you learn from it? So when we talk about, you know, access uh, to resources, one of my resources that I love 
to try to get the kids to understand is the idea of love, right? That we all are equal human beings and we all deserve love in there. And for, for my lessons over there, we talk about explicitly in class the various types of love. Um, so the first two weeks, I really spend most of the time focusing on teamwork and community building. Uh, just on there and reinforcing to them, I'm going to create an atmosphere where you could be yourself, right? where you could be your authentic self. And we're going to love your authentic self. And at first, whenever I do this lesson, we talk about love uh, in the discussions. It's always the weird faces, the idea of romantic love. Right? That's what the students automatically jump to because that's what sells and music mm -hmm. and yep. movies. So for me, the, the best lessons I have are when we understand that and we talk about that and they understand and they can tell me the various types of love and how we can increase our love for each other on there. And that shows up in, in all different ways. And that'll show up in, you know, empathy. That'll show up in, in the students taking some ownership of the class on there. Uh, that'll show up in some of the discussions when love is not shown uh, on there. So those, every time we could get back to this idea that everyone deserves love uh, and then we model it and the students do it without me being that force of prodding or facilitating on there. Those are my favorite lessons. Uh, if you want to go like, social justice in the idea of, you know, we usually think, you know, race when we talk about social justice and socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. you know, that two-headed monster that Dr. King talks about uh, of capitalism and racism. Uh, when I was at my last school, I used to tell the kids, this was a K to sixth grade, that you could create any game you want. And if you bring me that game, if you have to either draw a picture or write the game down with the rules, plus you have to write down the value. Like, why are we doing the game? What are we gaining? How are we growing from the game? What are we learning? So I used to tell them, any game you bring in, and now I was the only phys ed teacher, so I had a little you know, flexibility in this. I will incorporate your game in some shape or form. All right, I tell them, I may have to modify it, depending on like if it was a game where kids were out. Obviously, I'm not going to have a game like an elimination game because that goes against, you know, my beliefs on there. But I'll get to the core of your game or activity. So uh, I would tell them like most of the time I could do with that class. Sometimes I would say, hey, I already have this set up. It's going to have to wait a class or two. Um, they came up with a Rosa Parks bus game, which was amazing. And, and it was because, not my class, they made the connection from learning about Rosa Parks. It was third grade in their class. And then they came up with a bus game and set it up and, and talked about the injustice in my class and created the game. That probably, if I had to pick like a pinnacle moment, that a snapshot in, in Mr. Schneider's teaching career that I, would really uh, hit the mark of what I hoped I could achieve more of, that would be it. When they came in on their own doing that, um, it just showed me, A, a connection outside my classroom, B, a connection to social justice, and then C, the use of student voice and choice in the class. I mean, it was just absolutely amazing. And then I was able to video it, put it on Seesaw, and share it with their parents. I mean, it just hit on all cylinders on that activity. That's, uh, that sounds beautiful to even have that experience of students doing something like that. So that's definitely a testament to your love or agape. It's like one of my favorite terms that they've uh, that I've learned about in the last few years. Talk about agape. Yeah. Well, agape is basically just love through service and action. 
So mm. that's one that I try to emulate in my classes and like in the school community. So there's definitely a lot of similarities with like your perspective and like what I've done in the past. And it's, this is actually the only time that I've ever heard another teacher describe it similar, like in a similar fashion. Usually that's completely forgotten about. So when I saw your, what was that? The uh, presentation with Sherry, right? You want to mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so first it's funny because that agape, uh, somebody on, on Twitter said, love is a verb. And when you put it in those terms, it really makes you think, um, what are we doing to demonstrate the love? I can sit here all day and say, I, I love everyone, mm -hmm. you know, and I, how many people are going to say that we don't love everyone? <laughs> you know, that's a, it's not a very politically correct answer. And B it's not an answer that allows you to look in the mirror and feel good about yourself. So we're all going to say we love everybody and we love everyone equally. But then when you start delving into it, well, how are you showing that you love everyone? What are you doing? Uh, so that was the first thing on there that when you put it in that framing, that love is a verb that gets to that agape like you talked about. So show me the action. What are we doing uh, to, to really show and, and continue to grow and work on love? So, uh, I first came across the term radical love through feminists and specifically, I believe, womenists. So feminists are the idea, and again, I'm going to butcher this. So <laughs> the idea that women should be equal and also have the opportunity to make the choices to do what they want, from what I understand. That's my perspective of feminism. I'm sure somebody who's more well-versed will have a more nuanced uh, definition. And so that means that if a woman wants to stay home and raise kids, that is fantastic. If that's what you want and that's your choice, that's fine. As long as you're not doing it because it's a societal expectation. And if you want to be a stripper and that's your choice and you weren't forced into it, that's your choice on there. And from what I understand, a true feminist says, as long as the woman is doing what she wants and, and in a way that's you know, up to her, then they would support that. And then the critique of feminism is feminism was kind of created by white people uh, and colonized by white women. So then there's offshoot of womanism, which is that whole idea of feminism plus critical race theory uh, in there. So in there reading bell hooks and actually I think Nietzsche was one of the first ones credited with coming up with this idea of radical love. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't, um, what do you call it, come across it in reading any of his stuff. But Bell Hooks, I think, was one of the first in the Comedy Heat Collective and, and all that. And so once I said, okay, I really am interested in love and I really want to set up an experience of love in my classes. I started doing that. Then I go, okay, now that I've been doing it, I want to talk about it. And who could I talk about it? Who would understand it and be able to add to it? So I hit up Sherry Spalitz out of Vienna, Austria, who is amazing, an amazing lady. Um, she's a black lady who was born in America, studied abroad, went to Austria, and has dual citizenship, but has lived there for hours. 30 years from now. So, and I know that she's big in the philosophy and she's big into growing. She's big into critical race theory. So I figured who would be a better partner. So the Charged Up EDU conference is going on. I don't know when this podcast is out, but it started on May 21st, 2020. Mm -hmm. And it'll run till, I don't know, maybe the 30th or something like that uh, there. And that was created by Adam Laveau. So we, we created um a presentation around the idea of what is love and what is radical love. And when we hear the word love, after we get rid of, you know, the romantic thing or understand that that's one part of it. But when we talk about love in school, a lot of times people think it's turning the other cheek constantly. 
They go, somebody yeah. harms me, but I love them, so I'm going to go, oh, okay. It's okay because I love you. But that's not, A, self-love, and that's not justice. And you can't have love without justice on there. So we really were talking about the idea of in school with our students and our staff, how do we show love, this idea of radical love, of being true to ourselves, which is hard. So one example of that would be if I'm walking down the hall and I see a teacher laying into a kid in the hallway, from a power dynamic, we're equals, right? I'm not their boss. They're not my boss. They have no power over me. I have no power over them. But if you talk about this idea of love and knowing, A, that's not the best for the student, B, it's not the best for the teacher, and C, if I truly love myself and I want to stand up for my core principles and values and lead by example, if I walk past that, then I am co-signing on that. So that would look like me saying to the teacher, are you okay? Do you need a break? Interjecting in a space that I may not be welcome, at least by the teacher. Now, the kid who's getting reamed, they're probably like, yes, (laughs) thank God I got a quick break. But even that idea of pausing for the teacher who may be in that fight or flight mode and letting them get a, a thing, uh, It's uncomfortable and people don't want to do that. In the teacher's room, speaking up when things are being said. And it's hard. It's hard for me and my language is pretty good around these subjects. But um, It is. like I I can feel you. I've been there. So, Yeah, and we know, yes, we know that implicit bias is going to show its head. And we could argue whether implicit bias is actually a thing or is it just bias. Uh, on there but we know that we're going to say or do racist things no matter who you are no matter what the color of your skin because we live in america so one time we were in the teacher's room we were talking about uh i i mentioned that i wanted girl i wanted people to dance and be leaders in the dance unit so i had i, I call people up when we we're doing movement so come up to the front Uh, if you want to be a demonstrator. And I had like three or four white girls in the front. And I said to the class, I said, all right, um, does anyone who's not white want to come up on there? And I said this in a lunchroom. And I I said, you know, I need, uh, are there any black girls who want to come up? And one of the girls in the class, her face looked like I had just cursed and, and said something wild because they're not comfortable talking about race Mm -hmm. on there. So I was telling this story at lunch and in and of itself, talking about race is not a racist thing. Now what we bring to that conversation, why do we mention, you know, Oh, there's a black guy. Well, what are we bringing in with that statement? Mm -hmm. Are you saying that's a scary individual? Why do we mention the race there? Like what was the point? Could you just have said guy or why did you emphasize the color of their skin? In this case, it was because the people in the front of the room were not representative of the entire class. So I want to make sure in my teaching that I have people that are representative of everybody in there. My school is pretty well broken down. I think it's like 40% white, 30% black, 30% everything else uh, in there. So we do have a decent amount of diversity. And one of the other teachers said, well, why can't you, uh, why couldn't you say like, could we have a brown hair girl come up? And I'm like, it kind of threw me off. And I was like, I don't know, I guess I could have. And this is where being a co-conspirator is huge. Another lady said, because he wanted someone who wasn't white to go to the front. So again, for me in there, I wasn't able to be my, myself and, and rise to the occasion. And where having somebody else step up is huge 
And this ally was white. This, you know, Martha talks about an imperfect ally, talk about co-conspirators, co-liberators. I mean, there are various terms there um, on there. But if we truly care about love and we get back to that idea that we talked about earlier about modeling over there, uh, then we have to say something even when it stinks. So in the presentation Sherry and I did, we just talked about love in all the capacities, love for a colleague who says or does something against what, what we believe is, is proper or correct. So we box them up. Oh, they're racist. Oh, they're not a good individual. Or, oh, they're problematic. And by closing ourselves off to that person, what opportunities are we losing to grow and to learn from them? Because everybody's got something you can learn from. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I try to tell the people on the podcast all the time that same idea, that especially in teaching, there's no hierarchy of teachers. There's no, I'm the best teacher, this is the worst teacher. Yes, I experience helps with classroom management and tweaking lessons and growing, but there's no, you know, this one is the pinnacle of what we want to get to oh, yeah. on there. So I know I rambled a little bit. Talk to me about that. What are your thoughts on that? I enjoyed a lot of what you had to say and just like the modeling. Um, but you're right in the fact that every person's different. Every classroom's different. Every teacher's different. And like, just because something worked in me and my, for me in my context, it's definitely not always going to work for somebody else. So this is a function of this podcast. Um, definitely the radical love part being in those situations like in staff meetings and depending on how long you've been there, how comfortable you are with using the language to make things right, to actually be your authentic self is difficult. I remember numerous times and it's usually in the format of the teachers attacking the students. Like it's, it's very problematic when just from my examples being in Philadelphia, which I'm sure completely different to some extent than yours. Like when teachers are yelling at kids, that's almost like a norm. So when you come in and you're doing things the complete opposite where you don't yell, where your voice doesn't change much, you might raise your voice to be heard, but you're not screaming at kids. Is taken as weakness. So showcasing that love is considered weak. It's very interesting. I guess oh, one my. recent example was during one of the professional development sessions that we had online because of COVID. And they were laying into the parents and the kids in Germantown, where we just found out like three weeks ago that 60% of the kids do not have access to the internet, but there were multiple teachers calling out parents and kids. It was really difficult to just like actually start paying attention to that PD because it was our, it was our, it, it wasn't good. It wasn't a good PD experience. So I had to interject and just be like, Hey, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's okay. You're doing your job, but you can, you cannot right now put all this pressure on parents and kids when you're already barely able to handle it because you're showing it right here. Like, it's okay, you're doing your job. Just connect with the kid. If they can do it, they can do it. If they can't, they can't. And that was just a really hard moment to stop the entire conversation as the first-year teacher in this school. So I was like the new person to just jump in and be like, yo, what are you doing? Like, this is not okay. We need to reframe this. Yeah, I think the pandemic is, is interesting uh, over there because – when we get back to social justice, if we believe everyone should have access to resources, and we couple that with the idea of if we love people, we want to provide an atmosphere, opportunities for them to grow, then you start getting that critical lens on of going, well, the internet is, uh, there was an article called the internet is the new water. Right? It's really hard to succeed in life at this present moment without the internet. So now that raises the question, 
why did it take a pandemic for your school to suddenly realize, A, that 60% of the kids do not have the internet? And where was the responsibility of the school before that to get the internet for the students, knowing that that's a part of growth that they need in order to succeed? And you're going to hear the stories and people go, well, some families don't want the internet. Okay, so we'll set those families aside. You don't want people in your house. You don't believe in the internet, whatever, whatever. That's got to be a minimal percent. Most people want the internet. And we know that cable companies are providing internet for $10 a month, right? For low income socioeconomic status Mm -hmm. over there. So my question would be, how hard did your school push to have the internet before the pandemic? And why did they not see this was a problem for the students? It's a good turnaround question. I would say overall for the district, that was not even a thought. Like at that point, I mean, we could talk about how schools sometimes monopolize things. Like education in a way is monopolized by schools. Like you can only be educated in this context, in this like building or like through a teacher on a laptop. Whereas you see things like YouTube and there's other resources out there supplied by other people that create information and knowledge. I mean, Philadelphia is unique. I'm not giving him excuse. Like, it's very problematic. I think that, in all honesty, there should have been one of those neoliberal fusions. I mean, you have Xfinity, Comcast, located in Philadelphia. Why aren't we making a model like the, I forget the name of the city, but there, I believe there's a city in Tennessee that I think partnered with Google, where they offered Wi-Fi and Internet as a public utility. Philadelphia very easily could have done that. We already have the infrastructure set up. It's just connecting some wires, changing the format within the context of the zip codes. You could do that. And that could have been a push by the Philadelphia school district to alleviate some of the issues that did just pop up for a pandemic. But that goes back to, I think in general, humans enjoy being comfortable. So if you get stuck in that sense of comfort and complacency and Once again, going back to that idea of precarity, that it's individual, it's neoliberal, it's on you to do it. It's almost as if the school district is anti, and I think a lot of times teachers too, they're anti their mission. Like they're not actually fulfilling it to the best of their ability by making those arguments, by sticking up for the kids, by going to businesses and being like, hey, how can we make this happen for our students and our people? Yeah, and I think that's where our political system has broken down. And, and that's one of the drawbacks to capitalism mm-hmm. uh, together is that when money drives everything and you go, well, if it doesn't make me money, I'm not doing it. That's a problem. So then we go, we don't sit and look at, okay, How are people's lives being impacted either negatively or positively uh, out there? And like you said, with Xfinity being there, I mean, that would, that's, that's a no brainer. Yeah. They're headquartered (laughs) there. How many billions do they make a year that they could just spend 10 billion and just revitalize Philadelphia with internet? Again, that means you have to care and you know, you have to love people. And you have to believe in social justice. And we can't force it. Mm -mm. Which is the irony that hopefully the pandemic does force that in a way, or at least forces people to look at their cards differently. I, I wish I, I had a rosy outlook there. I mean, even the pandemic, when the States finally were forced to release you see that black people are hit three times worse than everyone else. Yep. It's just, it's ridiculous. And, and as a country, we've set up systems to hold people back. And then when any attempt to uh, create a more equitable system or, or go the other way and say, okay, we've done these systems. How can we give people an advantage because we've given them disadvantage for so long then all the groups that have been advantaged suddenly see that 
as their advantage going away, or they see it as the norm, and suddenly it's like, oh, no, 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 you can't give other people help. That's not fair to us. But you've had an unfair advantage for 400 years. Yeah. And suddenly we're trying to get things to go the other way. So, again, I don't know. I don't know if it's ever going to happen in my lifetime. Hopefully the world continues <laughs> past our lifetimes. And I mean, things are getting better. I, not at the rate we want. And when we look and you go, okay, you know, if we look linearly and we go slavery, Jim Crow, civil rights, things are getting better. But when you look at how much harm is being done during the process and how slow it's moving, it's difficult to watch. It is. But that goes back to the concept of modeling, doing what you find best and is most human, showcasing that love. Yeah, and agape. Yeah. Right. So what, do, what, are, what are we doing? What are we doing to help correct things? I think that's actually a perfect end point. All right. Got it in the books. Another so, one. Another, another good one in the down. books. All righty. Anything news. else? I know. Yeah. Anything yeah, else just, you need from me? Yeah, let's just do like a quick little outro question. So Sure. Here we go. Last question from this conversation today. For a teacher, whether they're a future teacher in the field, whether they're in the field or they've already left the field, what's one thing you would like them to take away from this lesson or podcast in regard to agape love? Mm, one thing. Sure. So if love is an action, uh, and we know that we're all imperfect human beings, then it's a continual process of being critical of yourself and what you say and what you do uh, in order to keep modeling and working and executing love. So everything we do, just constantly be reflective, be critical of yourself and everyone else. And I'll tell you what, sometimes you're not that much fun at parties, uh, but that's okay. Just be critical of everything, everything you see, everything you hear, everything you do, every thought you have over there, reflect as much as you can on the idea of how am I working on that idea of agape? How am I showing love? How am I working towards social justice on there? And, and you're going to fall short and you may get a day where you're not doing it and you go, okay, there was one day that I wasted going towards the mission. So let's, let's make sure it doesn't become two days. And if it's two days, let's make sure it doesn't become three days. Like just constantly reevaluating, rechecking, reflecting, doing all those things to work on your, your purpose. If that is your mission uh, and purpose. And I don't know. I, I don't know what other purpose there is to life. Cause it's definitely not accruing money. You know, we die and the money doesn't come with us unless you are a Viking. You believe you could spend it in the afterlife over there. I'm sure my ancestors believe that. Mm, <laughs> such a good show, by the way. Vikings, you watch it on Amazon Prime? I might have to check it out just because Dude, of the beard. It is seven seasons. Each season's like 12 episodes. Each episode's an hour. It is amazing. Tangent. Well, I think it's uh, it's completely okay for you to ruin parties. I know I do. So if you're being critical, do it. I enjoy having that role in life. Uh, thank you for joining us, Justin. I hope well, thank you for having me. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. Check out the resources I provided in the description. Please subscribe to our podcast, Wrapping PE. If you have any questions or would like to be a guest on the show, you can email me at wrappingpe at gmail.com. Goodbye for now, but until the next time, I would like to wish you peace and love. <laughs>